If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll place a Bible in your hand. And you can follow along in Exodus chapter 4. We are going to be here this morning. I, I love God's Word. I love how God changes people. Um, you see it just about every story in God's Word. Um, here we have Moses being called to be the deliverer of Israel from Egypt. And we've been through chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's, he's there before God at the burning bush. God is speaking to him. Moses gives one objection after another of why he thinks uh, you know, that he is not adequate, shouldn't be the guy that delivers uh, Israel out of Egypt. And so we've already gone through two of the objections. And so here are all five Objections. The first one we went over in chapter 3, verse 11, where Moses says, who am I? I'm just not adequate. And it's not so much, Moses, who you are. What it's about is who God is, and he's going to be with you. And then he uses the excuse, well, when I go to Israel and I talk to the Israelites, who, who am I going to say sent me? In other words, who are you? And so God introduces himself as Yahweh and that he is the I am to Moses. And then we're going to get into this chapter here where Moses is going to say, well, what if they don't believe me? And I'm not a really good speaker. And oh my goodness, please just send someone else. Wow. So we're going to come up to objection number three here. Verse one of chapter four, Moses still before the burning bush speaking to God. Then Moses answered, said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. The first two objections, who am I, who are you? Third objection may be based on uh, 40 years earlier when he tried to be the redeemer of Israel and he killed the Egyptian and then they all turned on him and they didn't believe him at that point. Why are they going to believe him 40 years later? How are they going to believe that I'm the guy that you sent? And so God is going to give Moses three signs to do in front of the elders of Israel. The three signs is that he's going to have this staff of Moses and and he's going to be able to throw it down and turns into a serpent. He's going to have his little uh, leprous hand trick where he puts his hand inside the cloak and then pulls it out. It's leprous and then he puts it back in and it's renewed. And, and then he's going to have turning regular water into wine. Uh, wine. <laughs> Jesus did that. He turns it into blood. Okay. He does it in, turns it into blood. So... In verse 2, he says, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff or a rod. And he said, cast it to the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. You know, great, Redeemer of Israel, come back. You know what I mean? And the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand, take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand, caught it and became a, a rod in his hand and that they may believe that the Lord God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The word rod in the Hebrew is a Hebrew word meaning staff, rod, or shaft. And so this is just Moses' walking stick is what it is. It's his walking stick. A staff to lean on. It was just an ordinary stick. God says, throw it down, cast it to the ground, you know. We read in God's word that, um, that the angels are continually learning. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, we read that. We also read it in 1 Peter 1, 
verse 12, that they don't know ahead of time the future. Okay, they're in the same time period in the sense of us in the way that they are learning as well. They're learning about God's grace and his mercy and his love and his compassion and what it is to redeem and all those things as they are watching what God is doing here with mankind. And so I can only imagine here that this great redeemer of Israel throws down the staff and he runs from it as it turns into a serpent. And I just kind of hear the angels in heaven probably thinking, are you sure this is the guy? This is the one that is going to do this, lead the children out of Israel? Now, being out in the desert, as Moses has, and being raised in Egypt, Moses is going to come in contact with a lot of snakes. And so, for him to run away would tell us it's probably a poisonous snake that he's doing that with. Many in Pharaoh's court are going to have staffs or scepters with a cobra's head on it. We have a picture of one right here. So. And so, it could be that when he's throwing down that staff and it's turning into a snake, it's probably a cobra. And it's probably to show that God was greater than the gods of Pharaoh. The cobra was on the headdress as well of Pharaoh. And so we have a picture of that as well. And, and you'll notice in this picture that next to it is also... Uh, a head of a vulture, okay? And so this is called the Uraeus. It's a name given to the symbol of an upright or rearing cobra. Uh, In ancient Egypt, it denoted royalty, divine authority. The Uraeus is a symbol of the Egyptian goddess uh, Wajet, um, one of the oldest deities in the Egyptian pantheon. Wajet was worshipped as the patroness of the Nile Delta, the protector of lower Egypt. The center of the Wajet's cult was Perwajet, and the snake symbol worn by the pharaohs was seen to symbolize Wajet's protection of Pharaoh and her approval of his claim of being king, okay, and being sovereign. When the upper and lower kingdoms of Egypt unified, an image of Nekbet, the vulture goddess, which is on there as well, and patron of upper Egypt, joined the image of Wajet as a, as a Uraeus of the Pharaoh's crown. The two goddesses were known as Nepti. The two ladies were seen as joint protectors of the newly unified kingdom. So Moses' staff becomes a snake. Most believe probably a cobra. And God tells Moses to pick it up, grab it by its tail. I wonder if Moses probably at that point said, okay, but could you make it a stick first, you know? Because to grab it by its tail shows you're listening and trusting God because you know you don't pick up a snake by its tail because if you do that, it turns around and bites you, okay? So for him to do that would show great faith on his part, great faith on his part. And so Moses' staff becomes a snake, but when he grabs it by the tail, becomes the stick again, an ordinary stick. Now, if you're like me growing up, anytime you went camping, dudes especially, you know this, okay, is that when you're a kid, when you're going camping, as soon as the campsite's set up and you're in within the eye range of mom and dad and everything, you would go off and explore, and the first thing you want to get is a stick. You're looking at that stick as your walking stick, as you go hiking with your family, you're looking for a stick that in your mind you'll be able to fight off bears, you know. And so men have always enjoyed having some sort of a walking stick with them wherever they go. 
And yet that's exactly what Moses has. Just an ordinary stick. That's all it is. And yet God is saying, whatever you have, however ordinary, I can use it. If you just give it to me, I can use it. We think sometimes God's never going to use me. I, I don't have a seminary degree. I'm not that well-versed in the Bible. I'm not a scholar of the Bible. I don't have those gifts that other people have. And so, but th- see, that's the whole point. God is just asking this thing. What, what do you have? What do you have? And are you willing to give that over to the Lord so he could use it for his glory? God is not asking you to be someone who you are not. Okay, and sometimes we think that, oh, I got to be like this guy if I'm going to do this. I'm going to be like this person if I'm going to do that. I made that mistake. When I was at Horizon Christian Fellowship in San Diego, my father-in-law, a great teacher of the Bible, Mike McIntosh, you know, he could say Mary had a little lamb and 150 people come forward and receive Jesus. (laughs) It was quite irritating. (laughs) But it was God's way. I tried to be Mike the first time I taught. Didn't go over well. And being the wise person I was, I did it three, four, maybe five more times. (laughs) Still did not do well until I realized that the Lord was saying, I'm not calling you to be a clone of Mike McIntosh. I'm calling to be you. Let me use you. Let me use you. And so whatever it is that you have, whatever resource you have, whatever you have at your disposal in your hand, whatever it is, Lay that down for him. Surrender that to him. And watch him transform that before your very eyes. God likes to use what's in our hand. I I noticed that when it came to Shamgar, one of the judges of Israel. In Judges 3.31, Shamgar had an oaks god, and he used it to kill 600 Philistines. Then, of course, that makes you remember Samson. Had the jawbone of a donkey in his hand, and he killed a thousand Philistines. And by the way, in that story is where God reveals the dumbest person that's ever lived. I don't know if you know that or not. That's why I'm here, to show you these things, okay? How many people did Samson kill? One thousand So after 999 dudes get slaughtered by the jawbone of a donkey. He got one guy left. He's looking at all the carnage around him. 999 dudes dead. It's the last one. What's he thinking? Oh, I could take him. You're an idiot. Dumbest man that ever lived right there. All the evidence is around. You're not going to win this. He goes for it. He's gone. He gone. He gone. Then you have David. What was in his hand? A sling and a stone? And he killed Goliath. But my favorite is a little boy approaching Jesus with five loaves and two fish, handing it over, this is what I have, to the all-sufficient one who is able to then meet the needs of the multitudes and feed them. That's really insufficient, isn't it? Two fish, five loaves. But when you take what is insufficient, put it in the hands of the person who's all sufficient, boom. God can meet needs. 
God can meet needs. And that's all he's asking for you. Dave, I'm inadequate. Yeah, you are. And just so you know, you are inadequate. So am I. But you put your inadequacy in the person whose hands is very adequate, and God can do amazing things. And that's what he's trying to teach Moses here. Moses, watch what I can do with an ordinary stick. Guess what, Moses? You're that stick. You're an ordinary guy. God loves to take the ordinary and make it extraordinary. I love that about God. So God then gives Moses another sign. Verse 6. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and then he took it out. Behold, his hand was leprous. So probably some sort of uh, you know, coat that he has on that he puts it in. His hand disappears. He brings it out. It's as white as snow. It's leprous. Okay, flaky and, and everything else. And then it says, put your hand in your bosom again. Puts it in there. Uh, and draw it out of your bosom, and behold, it will restore like other flesh. Then it will be if they don't believe your, your little stick into a serpent trick kind of thing, uh, if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. Leprosy was widespread in Egypt, and it was well known that the disease was highly contagious, completely incurable, thus requiring seclusion. If you had it, highly contagious, so you, so you can't live with society, you have to live by yourself. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 describes that. Leprosy often speaks of sin and judgment in the Bible. In Numbers chapter 12, Arian and Miriam spoke against Moses and leprosy broke out over Miriam and it says, and Aaron cried out to Moses and says, so, says, oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly in which we have sinned. We see this, uh, this again, uh, leprosy kind of being a curse for sin. When King Uzziah in Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 19, great godly man, great king uh, of, of Judah, um, but then at the end of his life, because of all the things God did through him and everything else, he wasn't able to remain humble and pride crept in. And because of that, he goes to burn incense on the altar of God, which is only reserved for the priests to do. And in his brazen pride, all of a sudden, leprosy broke out right there on his forehead for the rest of his life. And he had to live isolated in a house until his death. It's interesting to me that Moses was told to put his hand in his bosom, inside his cloak, which meant that his hand is probably over his heart at that point. And he brings it out and it shows leprosy. It shows, you know, how flaky and leprous it is. And I believe again that leprosy kind of is, is an illustration as well, a picture of sin. And yet you look at your heart, and what does it say? What does the Bible say about your heart? Your heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God. Only God. And so I believe that this kind of also speaks of our heart, that it's very sinful, very leprous before God. But God can clean it. So you can bring it out and see it for yourself that it's sinful, but then, then God can clean it and renew it. We read in Matthew 5, 15, verse 18, that Jesus said this, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. You know, remember that. When you are speaking and you're speaking evil and you're angry and you're screaming and you're yelling at things, that, that, that's an indication of your heart. It comes from the heart. God needs to change the heart in order for the mouth to be changed. And yet, you know, things happen to where all of a sudden you say something, you go, man, where'd that come from? Lord, I am so sorry. And God says, that's all right. You're not perfect yet, but we're still working on it. We're still working on it. 
In Ezekiel 36, it says, For I'll take you, God speaking to uh, Israel through Ezekiel, says, For I'll take you from among the nations, gather you out of the countries, bring you into your own land, and I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments and do them. Only God can cleanse the heart. He's the only one that can do that. Going back here to Exodus chapter 4 verse 8. Then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign that you may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take the water from the river, that be the Nile, And pour it on dry land. And the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. These are the signs he was supposed to do in front of the children of Israel. So when he first arrives there, that they will know that God has spoken to him and called him to be the deliverer of Israel. Okay. So this other sign, this judgment that is kind of given uh, on Egypt, the Egyptian, the Nile meant life its waters would flood every year. Uh, it would fertilize the soil, prepare for planting and harvest, not to mention the fresh grass for all the animals to feed upon. Uh, and so this will be a sign to them if they don't believe. If a man rejects the testimony of the Redeemer who alone can deliver them, then nothing but divine judgment is going to come and eternal death awaits them. Uh, you know, God's giving Moses all these signs to show the people. And, and, uh, and I've had people come to me before and say, okay, show me a sign that God is real. You know, and I said, okay, very easily. I'll show you the cross and I'll show you the empty tomb. Those are the signs that we have today. You know, that Jesus himself was an actual historical figure that he's written about, not only in the Bible, but other secular accounts as well. And there's not a serious archaeologist out there. There's not a serious historian out there that will cast the dispersion that Christ never lived, that Jesus wasn't a real person, because they know that he was. Now, the debate is, was he God or not? I get that, okay? But when it comes to the reality of who he is, there's no debate there. And there's nothing written at the time when it talks about the disciples, okay, and how they were following Christ and claiming the resurrection, It would have been very easy if Jesus did not raise from the dead, but was still in a tomb to produce the body. And yet we have nothing written about that. Nothing written about that. That's my sign. The sign is the empty tomb. It's the empty tomb. Objection number four comes. Then Moses said to the Lord in verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Interesting, he said the slow of speech means heavy of mouth, okay? It seems that Moses' excuse was really not that justified because 40 years earlier, um, when, when he was in, when he was an Egyptian, Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, says Moses was learned in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds, you know? And so, okay, at one time... You're pretty good with words. Now you're saying you're not so good with words. Okay, you know, maybe you're not as clear as you used to be 40 years ago or whatever, but come on. It's just another excuse. 
And the thing is, is that God does not need a good communicator in order to communicate. We see that with the Apostle Paul. Dave, what are you talking about? I'm talking about this. Something very, very brutal has been spoken about the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, the Corinthians said this about Paul. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. What? How would you like to be received by a group of people that believe that about you? Wow. You know, and then Paul goes on and even says himself in 2 Corinthians eleven six. even though I'm untrained in speech, yet I'm not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. You know, Paul wrote 13 letters, some believe 14, if it's Hebrews, okay, in, in the New Testament, all right? So it's kind of like you got pretty much your whole New Testament excluding the Gospels as, as well as the, the, the book of Acts and some other letters that are in there by John and Peter. But the rest is from Paul. So he's really good at writing things down. He's really good with letters and stuff, but his presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Can't even stand listening to him. What? I understand a little bit about what that's about. Dave, what do you mean by that? I mean this. I have many heroes of the faith. I have many godly men that I look up to. And I have many godly men that have written just amazing commentaries. And I go to all the time and go, wow, how you were able to glean that is absolutely amazing. And that really ministers to me. This is great. And one of them has a voice that when he speaks to me, it is like nails on a chalkboard. I can't tell you how disappointed I was. You know, going, oh, man. I've even had someone say, Dave, you, are you ever going to have that guy come here and speak? No. I just, I, godly, wonderful guy. I just, me, that, oh, I, I can't. I, I just can't. I, I, I would never call his speech contemptible or anything like that, but I kind of understand if, if for some reason... You know, that, that when Paul speaks, it's not as fluent as great orders are that you're expecting and everything like that. But what matters is what is being, not said, being said, not what is how it's being said. It's what is being said. Can you look past that to the content? And I, I, and I can, you know, when he writes it down. <laughs> it's just tough for me. It's a tough one. Some of you know who I'm talking about. I love him. He's a brother in Christ. Things will change when he's up in heaven. I guarantee you that voice will be different. But anyway. Um, in 1 Corinthians 2.1, Paul says this, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I have determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. This is Paul speaking. If you didn't have this, every time Paul taught or went somewhere, you see the boldness of Paul, you just think that he has just given it. This is what God put on my heart to say. But even he trembled in fear, knowing what the Corinthians believed of him. He's going, oh man, I got to go back there? Go speak to them again? And there's some fear and trembling going on there. 
And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, I come in weakness, but the words that I speak, that is the power of God. Moses is going to have to learn this as well. Moses, stop looking at yourself, what you can and cannot do. Know this, God is with you, and he will deliver it for you. Verse 11 in Exodus 4 says, So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. It's that last part and what's being said before that makes more sense of what verse 11 says. God is telling Moses here, he goes, hey, don't you get it? Don't you think that since I created your mouth, I could use your mouth? Don't you understand I can do everything? It's about me. It's not about you. And when you understand this, and when you look at it in the context of what is being said here, then verse 11 makes a little bit more sense. The word make in the Hebrew is sum. It means to put, to place, to set, to appoint, to direct, to make. In context, God is speaking that regardless of your ability or disability, I can use you because I am God. But the word make there, again, means to put, to place, to set, to appoint, to direct, to make. And now when you read verse 11... And looking at the context of what God is saying to Moses, I am God, so you, you don't think that I can use your mouth? Instead of the word make, use the word direct in there. Who directs the mute? Who directs the deaf or the seen or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Put the word appoint in there. Who appoints the mute, the deaf, the seen or the blind? Have not I the Lord? When you read it with some of those other words that you use instead of make that it looks like it's so fatalistic that God made that person blind. He's instead is saying in context, I can use the blind. I can use the mute. I can use the deaf because I'm God. That is what's being said there. Paul had this disability of this thorn in his flesh. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's going to ask God to remove this thorn in his flesh. Paul has just had this amazing vision, this amazing dream, where he's caught up into the third heaven. He doesn't know if he's in body or out of body. He was caught up into what is called paradise. He heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter, and so he can't tell us what he saw up there. Okay, and so of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. And so he says here in verse 6, for though I might desire to boast, I saw something that nobody else has seen. I've heard things that other people on earth have not heard. I know something you don't know. Yeah, I mean, he, he could boast that way if he wants to, you know. But he says, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he seems to be or hears from me, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. It is Paul that God gave the revelations of the mysteries of God 
that those who've gone before him, even all the prophets before him, have never known. But God revealed it to Paul that the Gentiles will also be partakers of the kingdom of God. God gave that to Paul. He didn't give that to anyone else. And nobody else knew that. The Jews didn't know that the kingdom of God was going to be open to the Gentiles. But God spoke that to Paul, as well as other revelations he spoke to Paul. And so Paul could have this puffed up head and ego. I, God's revealing things to me. He's lifting me up to the third heaven. I mean, I, dude, how cool that is. But he says, but I might be exalted above measure by the abundance of these revelations. So a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And it was something physical. In the book of Galatians, it talks about that Paul has some sort of vision problem. Okay. And, uh, and so it could be speaking of that. It could be speaking of something else other than that. Okay. But it was some sort of uh, physical ailment. Okay. And so he pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He goes, guess what, Paul? It's okay to have that, that uh, thorn in your flesh. It's okay to not be physically perfect. It's okay because guess what? My grace is going to be sufficient for you. I'm going to give you the strength that you need to do everything I've called you to do. Even though you might have this disability in your life, I can still use you. And for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I rather boast in my infirmities as opposed to the revelations and the extra things that I've been able to see that maybe other people haven't been able to see. I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, that people will be able to see Jesus through that. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I love that. Regardless of our frailties, and, and God often does use them, and he does it for his sake, for his glory. You know, Joni Erickson Tata, when she was younger as a teenager, suffered a diving accident, which has placed her to be a quadriplegic for the last five decades. And so in her booklet, Hope, the Best of Things, Joni imagines meeting Jesus in heaven and speaking to him about her wheelchair that she is bound to. And she says this, The weaker I was in that thing, my wheelchair... The harder I leaned on you, and the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. Oh, man. We're talking quadriplegic saying this. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of the wheelchair. Amazing. How can she speak this way? The bruising as a blessing. Only through the grace of God. But God was able to reveal to her through her bruising something about himself that we probably won't understand until we're on the other side of heaven. But she's been able to lean into the Lord and see his strength through it all. Amazing. So Moses come to his fifth objection, which is 
really showing Moses for who he is at this moment. And he is a wimp. Four times, God has come alongside every one of his objections to basically say, I'm going to be there, Moses. I'm going to be there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And after all that, what is Moses' last rejection? Please, could you just find someone else? Wow. And he said, oh Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Wow. Moses doesn't want to go. He's not unable. He is unwilling. And this is when God gets mad. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know what he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him, put the words in his mouth, and I will put... Uh, And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So basically, God is going to speak to Moses. Moses is going to speak to Aaron. Aaron will speak to the people in Pharaoh. Okay? And he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand, which you shall do the signs. So... The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God was not angry when Moses asked, who am I? I'm not adequate. Um, He's not mad at him when he asked the question, who shall I send sent me? He's not angry for him saying, suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. He's still not angry when he says, look, I'm not really good at speech. I'm not really that great of an order. Okay. God got angry when Moses became completely unwilling. That's when he got angry. It wasn't as though Moses was unable. He was unwilling. So Aaron is going to come alongside of you, and he's going to help you with this. Aaron turns out to be a source of many problems to Moses. Aaron instigated the worship of the golden calf. Okay, we'll get to that in Exodus 32. Aaron's own sons blasphemed God with impure offerings in Leviticus 10, and he openly speaks evil against um, Moses in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. So... I believe when I read God's word that all God is asking from us, his servants, to be willing, available, and teachable. And if you can fill those three things, then God can do amazing things through you. And I believe you'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, so long as you you continue to be willing, available, and teachable. God will be there. And so are you willing this morning to be a testimony for God? So in the rest of chapter 4, records the departure of Moses from Midian his arrival into Egypt by the end of the chapter. And so in verse 18, it says, So Moses went, returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, said to him, Please let me go, return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. So he works for Jethro, and he doesn't want to leave him hanging. So however long it takes him to go from uh, the burning bush experience there at Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, down to Jethro. Remember, he has Jethro's sheep. He doesn't abandon them. Probably takes him time to get him down there. So we're probably taking a couple days to get back down to where Jethro is in Midian. Okay, And so by the time he's there, he then asks, permission. He says, this is what God's put on my heart. This is what he's shown me. Probably told him about the whole burning bush thing. And, and, and Jethro is very accommodating. He says, go in peace. So Moses is about to start on this great adventure. Yet he has no idea, no idea 
what the next 40 years is going to entail. He thinks, I got these great tricks that I get to do in front of the children of Israel, in front of Pharaoh. Eventually, they're going to let him go, and then I'll take the people over to Mount Horeb. That's what he is thinking. He's not thinking about how he's first going to show up, and he's going to do all these tricks in front of Israel, and they're going to love him. Then he's going to go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to say no. And then by saying no, he also makes it harder for the children of Israel, increases the amount of bricks they have to make without straw now. So now he goes back to the people, and now they're not so pleased with him. Yay, Moses! Moses. Just within probably two days. Same thing with Jesus, right? Hallel! Hallel! Save now! Got the branches, palm branches out. Our Savior's here. This is great. Five days later, crucify him. We are so fickle. Mankind is so fickle. And so Moses has no idea. He has no idea that God's going to bring down 10 plagues. He has no idea that, um, that they're going to, he's going to march him out to the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden Pharaoh's army starts coming. And then he has no idea that God's going to, to part the Red Sea. They're going to walk across it on dry land. And that God's going to close it on Pharaoh's army. He has no idea any of those things are going to happen. None. He has no idea. But God has a plan for Moses He's given him a little glimpse of the plan. And so he goes out with that little glimpse of a plan. And yet that plan is nothing like he thought it was going to be. Nothing. I remember when the Lord called me here to Colorado from San Diego. And I was part of a church, Horizon Christian Fellowship in San Diego. My pastor and father-in-law, Mike McIntosh, huge church, okay, six, seven thousand people or so. And so when I started going there and when I started getting involved there and after I married Mindy and I was associate pastor there, for, for the bulk of my time being there, I've only seen ministry done on a magnanimous stage. Okay? Then when Mike does an outreach, hundreds come to the Lord. When we do an outreach, thousands come out for it. It's always hundreds and thousands and you know, it just everything was done in a magnanimous fashion. And, and you have to have faith. Let's, let's go ahead and reserve that room in downtown San Diego and just know that God is going to bless and people are going to show up. We will, we'll do this at, at this arena. We'll do this outside and watch God bring thousands. And, and he always did. And so that's what I had in my mind. So I'm coming out here. God has led me out here. There was already 12 people praying and that I was in contact with. And so when we came out here, we had 12 people and we continued to pray. And within about three months or so, we had about 30 people, 35 people. And God put it on my heart to, you're going to go to Bear Creek High School and you're going to rent out that auditorium there every Sunday. And you're going to start doing Sunday morning services. Because in the meantime, we were just doing Bible study midweek, just seeing what the Lord would do. And I was excited about that. Yes, Lord. And before we did that first Sunday, when I announced to the small group that we had, hey, we, this, this is, is going on to the next step, and we need to reach the community for Jesus Christ, and so we need to start doing Sunday morning services. The moment I did that, we, we had people leave. We had a church split before we had our first church service. Go, wow, those people don't have much faith, you know? And so a couple months goes by, and, and so that first Sunday comes, and Bear Creek High School has an auditorium that seats 500 people. I had visions of grandeur <laughs> that God was going to fill every seat, you know. 
And so, didn't have the internet back then. No social media. How do we let people know? Flyers. Remember those? Half-page things. Flyers, new church in the area, da-da-da, putting it on cars, you know, handing them out to people. And they love that, by the way. Love that. So the very first Sunday, we had about 40 new people show up. It's great. I loved it. Have 40 new folks in there. That was awesome. I was jazzed. Plus our 30, you know, you got like 75. And, you know, Lord, you only have 424, five more seats to go, you know. And so it's kind of like, this is great. The next week, not one of those people showed up. We got like two or three new folks that weren't there the first week, you know. But week after week after week, I could hardly wait till the three-person worship team would go and sit down and fill three more seats in the front. <laughs> because the core group, we, if, if there were people that had kids, we, we'd have like five out there, you know, watching the kids and stuff like that because we all had kids, so at least they were watching our kids. But the other 25 folks or so are seated in like the first two rows. And then whoever else was new to the fellowship, guy back there, two maybe in the front over there, one over there, Maybe another one over there. 500 seat auditorium. You know how wounding that is? See, dude over there. And that, and that dude, dude's sleeping. <laughs> and to get up there and teach week after week and not getting any traction at all for about eight to nine months. And then before the summer, they were going to do construction. And so they said we couldn't rent it out during the summer. So we had to find another place. And so we went to Colorado Elementary School, where now they, they have this auditorium that seats about 100. And I said, well, that's probably good because we only have like about 40, 45. We gained like maybe 10 people in those eight months. So we went to Colorado. At Colorado, we were there for uh, that summer all the way to the beginning of the next summer, and they were doing the same thing, construction, so we couldn't meet there. So we had to find another place. At that point, we're probably about 80 folks. Okay, so now we go to Leewood Elementary School. And at Leewood Elementary School, we're there. And then during the wintertime, um, one, uh, one Sunday, it had snowed like six inches the night before. And, uh, and so we come to, to service, and uh, the, the janitor that's supposed to open up Leewood didn't show up. And so we're out there in the snow, and uh, um, I asked the worship, hey, let's, let's just play worship. And I'm trying to put a good face on it and things like that. And probably by the second song, nobody could even really hear each other because our lips are so numb. It's like about 20 degrees out, you know. And so Red Robin was gracious enough to open up for us. Um, and so we kind of went over there at about 9.15 and, and uh, prayed and ate and stuff like that. And so we end up going to um, another place. About eight months later, we rented a karate studio that is no longer a karate studio, about 4,000 square feet. And, and uh, we were probably about 80 folks when we went over there. And then we grew to 100. And then uh, about 25, 25 to 30 people just left, you know. And uh, most of them, uh, some of them were my board as well. They were, they were gone as well. And uh, the, the, the praise report about that is that every single one of those people that left and those that were on my board that left and everything else, um, we are dear friends with them to this day. God does what he does, and, and there's personalities involved, and everybody's an idiot, you know? And so uh, myself included with that. And so you learn through things, you know? And it really wasn't 
them. It was you as well, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I remember after that, though, that, you know, again, showing up the next week, and we're like 60, 65 people or so, and, uh, um, and, and realizing, you know, Lord, not really liking the plan. Not liking the plan. I guarantee you, as Moses goes through this, as we, we go through these things, he's probably gotten to that place of going, not liking the plan, okay? But it was around the seventh year that God gave me a verse, and he gave me Galatians, and he, and he tells me, he says, do not grow weary while doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not lose heart. And I knew what the Lord was speaking to me. The only thing that's going to derail this is you if you lose heart. And it's kind of like, okay. So we keep going, and God blesses, and we take over the space on the other side of, of the strip mall, and now that's about 11,000, 12,000 square feet, and God blesses, and we just see one thing after another. The next 10 years, I just see God just rock the place, and uh, uh, with the different services, people coming, people doing ministry when I'm not even there, and now God's using all sorts of folks, and it's kind of like you step back and just go, whoa, this is what I always envision ministry to be. You know, a group that you have called to do what it is that you've called us to do. And it was awesome. And then this church here, our church here, goes into crisis mode like about 11 years ago. And God brings my wife and I over here. And then I see what the Lord is doing today. And I look back and I'm going, you know what, Lord? I'm here to tell you something. I really like the plan. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty, But I'm really liking the plan. And so... God's word tells us in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, go and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me, find me when you search for me with all your heart. How awesome that is, that God has a plan for everyone. The only thing that derails that, if you don't give yourself over to him, you're not willing Verse 19 of Exodus 4 says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. So indeed, that um, Pharaoh before is now dead, that wanted to see Moses dead himself. It's interesting, the same thing happened with Joseph and Mary, with Jesus. Matthew 2, 19 says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he rose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel, eventually going to uh, Nazareth where Jesus was raised. Um, And then in Exodus 4.20, it says, Then Moses took his wife and his sons. Well, the last that we knew, it was just Gershom. They only had one son. But now they obviously have more than one son. And so the Moses took his wife and his sons, plural, set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hands. A couple things here. For one, we know according to Exodus 18 that Moses has two sons. He has Gershom and he has Eliezer, okay? And so uh, we know that in, from Exodus 18. Now, we also notice here that Moses' staff is now called the rod of God, Again, I would submit to you as that ordinary stick. When you hand yourself over to God, you are now God's. You belong to him. So, again, this staff, this piece of wood, this stick, a visible sign of God's saving power. 
1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ and the power of God and the wisdom of God. We are called ambassadors of Christ. The world still seeks a sign. You know what the sign is for the world? Us. You're that ordinary stick that you've handed into God's hands in receiving his son, Jesus. God will now use you. You are now the sign to others. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh. Up until this point, he says, do it before the children of Israel. Now he says, do it before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God says, I will harden his heart. It does not say he has hardened his heart, meaning there will come a time when God does harden his heart, but he has not done that yet. And we will come back to that. We can't go over that today. Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. We'll discuss this in more detail in the 10th plague, but I'll say this right now. God calls his firstborn son, Israel, his firstborn son. And Pharaoh, you have stolen away God's firstborn son. And if you're not going to let go of God's firstborn son, then God will take away your firstborn son. And we will see that in chapter 12 of the 10th plague. We'll go over that later. And then probably one of the strangest areas of scripture. These next three verses just makes you go, what? So we've read this. This is what I want you to do, Moses. Go here and there and da-da-da-da, all this kind of stuff. And then verse 24. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you're the husband of blood to me. So he let him go. And then she said, You're a husband of blood because of circumcision. Which is, I'm sure you all understand that, so let's just continue. <laughs> My goodness. I do think that there's some hints here. That as we look at this, we can come up with one or two scenarios. Okay, of probably what's, what's happening here. First look at verse 26. So he let him go. I'm going to look at it through one scenario, then we can look at it the next scenario. Okay, but either scenario, we get the gist of really what's happening here. Okay, so if the he that is spoken of in the New King James, the he is capitalized, but in the Old King James, it's not. So if the he that is being spoken there is God, then God has incapacitated Moses. Somehow, some way, illness, comatose, whatever. Moses can't move. He can't move. And it's not until after his son is circumcised that God lets him go. Okay? God lets him go. So, verse 24. It came to pass on the way at the encampment. Okay? When the Lord met Moses, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So, when the Lord met Moses at the encampment, meaning the place in which they lodged one night along the way to Egypt... It says the Lord sought to kill Moses 
And so because of verse 26, somehow incapacitated Moses. And so then we read back in verse 20 that Moses has two sons at this point. But only one gets circumcised here, which tells us the other one was circumcised. Okay? It would seem that somehow Zipporah knows what's going on. Moses is incapacitated. She obviously knows what she's supposed to do in order for God to let him go. And so she circumcises this son. Now, there's a hint here. We can tell from what she says here, even after she circumcises her son, she's still not happy. She's still not happy. She cuts off the foreskin of her son, casts it at Moses' feet, and says, Surely you're a husband of blood to me. And he let him go. And she said, You're a husband of blood because of the servant. Why did she say it again? Because Moses didn't hear it the first time because he's incapacitated. And she wants to make sure she hears him this time. Okay. Or it could be that somehow... Zipporah knows that Moses is going to be killed if she does not do that. And so verse 26, he let him go, meaning Moses let go of the one son that wasn't circumcised at that point. And she threw the foreskin down at his feet and just wanted to say that twice for emphasis. That somehow, which son though was being circumcised? I would submit to you it's a second son. How do you know that? Because I would submit to you the reason why Zipporah is so angry here is because she saw the circumcision of her first son according to his covenant, according to the Abrahamic covenant to which he was under, and it repulsed her. And so when the second son was born, she says, you're not doing this to my son. And so instead of being obedient to God, he listened to his wife and didn't circumcise his second son. Now, usually... It is the father that would do the circumcision, the priest of the household. And when they're a baby, it's no big deal, and so the mom can hold the baby, right? And then the man is the one that circumcises the child. But now, if this child is older, which it is, it would require him holding the son down. And now she has to do what repulsed her. She has to do it. Or Moses is completely incapacitated. And however she was able to circumcise their child without Moses holding them down, I don't know. But what it does show is that the circumcision had to take place in order for this journey to carry on. And what that tells us is how important it is to be obedient to what God has called you to do before you can do what it is that God has called you to do. You have to be in right relationship with God. Moses was not in right relationship with God, and yet he's being called to be the deliverer of Israel. Now, it's interesting here that I look at this and say, you know what? You can't be a leader of people if you're not a leader in your home. If your household isn't in order, how is it that you're going to lead others? And isn't that still the criterion for an overseer, for a pastor in God's church? It is. And we see it here as well. Now, here's something interesting in Exodus 18, verse 1. And Jethro, the priest of Midian. So what happens in Exodus 18? Here's something that you might find fascinating. Exodus 18 comes after Exodus 14 and 15. 
I know you find that fascinating. But what happens in chapters 5 all the way through chapter 12, you have all the plagues going on. And then after Passover in chapter 12, God starts to take the people out through Moses. And then in chapter 14, they come to what? The Red Sea. And and the army's coming. And then chapter 15, what happens? They are now through the Red Sea at that point. The Egyptian army is destroyed. They sing that wonderful song that Miriam wrote. And by the time they're in chapter 18, uh, um, Moses has now brought the people there to to, uh, Mount Sinai. And it's there that Jethro meets him is after all those things have taken place and the people of Israel have already been delivered. And so we read in Exodus 18, verse 1, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her away. When did he do that? I would submit to you after she was screaming, you're a husband of blood to me. He sent her away after that. She's written out of the count. We don't hear anything about Zipporah until here in chapter 18. When he goes out and meets uh, Aaron, no mention of him. When he goes and meets the children, no mention of her. Uh, Again, no mention of her at all until right here. Moses sends Zipporah back after the circumcision episode because Zipporah objected to the covenant of Abraham and the fulfillment of circumcision. And so we have this great leader of Israel, Moses, not showing great leadership for allowing this to happen to begin with. And another thing Moses is, he's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Moses, you can't screw up this type. Not gonna let you screw up this type. And the type is, of what Jesus himself said. Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to break the law, to fulfill the law. And he did that. Moses needs to fulfill this covenant. Can't be breaking it. He is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has to fulfill his obligations to God as well. We have to understand that circumcision was the distinguishing mark of God's people, a sign indicating membership in the covenant community, proving sonship of Israel. Zipporah seems to have understood this. Furthermore, circumcision was a covenant sign that went all the way back to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So then if Moses intended to be a servant of God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then he had a covenant obligation or responsibility to fulfill that by circumcising his sons. This would also play a role in the first Passover. Before God brought them out of Egypt, all the males needed to be circumcised. We all have to fulfill the covenant that was given to Abraham. Moses had to set the example. If he was going to lead the people out of Egypt, he himself had to keep that covenant, and so he had to circumcise his sons. The circumcision of Moses' son also showed us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, Hebrews 9.22. Notice Moses is under divine wrath until this happens. Why? Because there is no shedding of blood. But once that blood sacrifice of circumcision was done, the wrath was gone. The blood sacrifice came from another, his son. Death was removed from Moses because of the blood sacrifice of another, 
his son. This speaks of the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute. As strange as this story is, it does reveal the one true way of salvation. Every human being is a sinner who stands under the wrath of God. Like Moses, we have failed to keep God's law and thus are subject to God's curse against sin, our sin. The only way to be saved from eternal death is for God's wrath to be turned aside, which can only be done by a blood act. And that blood act was completed by his son on the cross, perfect sacrifice for sin, shedding of his own blood. By dying in our place, Jesus turned aside the wrath of God against us. And he is God's son, our substitute. Romans 3.23 said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through redemption, meaning bought back, that is in Christ Jesus, who God set forth as a propitiation, meaning payment, by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved from God's wrath to come through the blood sacrifice of another, that person being the Lord Jesus Christ, to which there's no other way in which man can be saved. I love that about God. So easy. He did it all. You know, but it does require one thing. Understand, when you come to Jesus, don't think that your life is going to be easy. It will not be. It requires your surrendering to him. And yes, in this world, you have tribulation, but be be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. He will be with you, just like he is with Moses here. And so verse 27, and the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. Hasn't seen him in over 40 years. Okay, I am sure that Aaron has no, had no idea that Moses was still around until God met with him and told him to go meet Moses in the wilderness. And they met there on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, where he was there for the burning bush experience. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. You know, there was a time, you know that that probably about 30 minutes or an hour or so, where they're just hugging on each other, talking about stories. How's mom and dad? Are they still alive? You know, all those kind of things are kind of going on. And, uh, and Aaron's just saying, God spoke to me, and, and he only said so much, so I don't know what else is going on. And, and so Moses fills in all the other things, you know. And oh, and, and oh, dude, check this out. And what does he do? I guarantee he showed him the signs right there. Threw down the staff, became a serpent. Now he sees his, his brother flee. You know, dude, chill out. Grabs him by the tail, becomes a staff again. What? That's nothing. Watch this. Dude. What? Do you have any water? Yeah, I got some water. Check this out. Shh. Blood. That would have been cool. That would have been cool to be able to do that. Showed him all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses, Aaron went, gathered together all the, il- all the elders, all the elders, sometimes elders are elders, um, elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. So again, Moses isn't speaking to them, Aaron is. Moses tells him what to say, now he's saying it to the people. Then he did the signs in sight of the people. Again, a very fun thing to do. Okay, you guys, step back, check this out. All you elders of Israel, this is how we know that God is speaking to my, to my brother here. Okay, Moses, you're on. You know, he throws it down, becomes a serpent, picks it up again. It's like you're at a magic show. You know, everybody's going, oh, oh, oh. You know, and then, 
Oh, that was even better than the last one. Check this out. Water. Blood. Oh, oh. Yeah, he's the guy. Loving Moses. Oh, Moses. All right, we're going to be delivered. Goes home, tells every, all their family members, stuff like that. There's a guy named Moses. He's going to deliver us from, from Egypt. And then he goes to talk to Pharaoh, comes back. Things are harder for the people of Israel. They're not so excited about Moses anymore. But we'll catch that next time. Let's pray. Let's pray. 